Curiosity did not kill the cat. I am a firm believer that the cat was framed. Hey, you cool cat. Welcome back to the Wild Business Growth Podcast. This is your place to hear from a new entrepreneur or innovator every single Wednesday morning who's turning wild ideas into wild growth. I'm your host, Max Brandstetter, founder and podcast producer at Max Podcasting. And you can email me at max at maxpodcasting.com to save time with your high-quality podcast. This is episode 133, and today's guest is Michelle Ronson. Michelle is the founder, educator, and chief curious cat at Curiosity Tank. They are a super cool design and user experience research firm who specializes in strategy, brainstorming, and research for some of the most coolest companies out there. Michelle was named a LinkedIn top voice for 2020, and she has over 5,000 hours teaching experience in the design and user research space. In this interview, we talk about how she built Curiosity Tank, how to ask better questions, and what that means for your business, and some of the fascinating and curious lessons that she learned from her parents in childhood, and how that has shaped her amazing dynamic with her own daughter. It is Michelle with one L. Enjoy the show. Alrighty, we are here with a rather curious guest, and I mean that in the best way. Founder of Curiosity Tank and just amazing user researcher, design, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. See how many times I could say that. Michelle Ronson. Michelle, thank you so much for joining. How are you doing today? Hey, thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Yeah, me too. I, well, I guess I'm always here, but <laughs> excited to chat today. I think your background is so cool, and I'm someone who loves curiosity as well. So really, really eager to dive into lots of cool topics. To start things off, you have a more intimate connection with the McDonald's logo than the average person, I would say. You mind sharing that story from your childhood? Uh, yeah, I love that story. People comment on it a lot. My earliest memory is of driving down uh, the highway uh, with my father. I was about three years old and he pulled over into the parking lot of a McDonald's and he parked right underneath the spinning um, sign of the golden arches. And he handed me a crayon and he asked me to draw what I thought the gear inside that sign looked like that made it spin. And the point wasn't, you know, for me to get this done accurately at that age. The point was to um, start to encourage me to think differently. And uh, for my brother too, I mean, we joke, both of us joke that like we were tortured as children, you know, to think about things and take things apart and really um, understand and inquire about why and how. And uh, it's just, a, it's a great memory and it's a, it's, a, it's a great story. I didn't realize that you, you had knew, known about that. Yes, but I, I've never thought about the inside of any logo. So it's pretty mind blowing there. That's that's really cool, though. I think it gives you a little little taste of what your childhood was like, as you described a childhood of torture, but I think a different <laughs> different type of torture. Positive, innovative, creative torture. <laughs> <laughs> what what did your drawing look like, if you remember? And was it anything close to what the actual gear or whatever it is inside of a logo actually looks like? You know, I don't remember what the drawing was, but I have a really clear visual of me at that age, like in the parking lot. And I had two pigtails and my tongue was kind of like hanging out and I was biting down on my tongue and I was holding the crayon kind of like a fist. I just remember, you know, having a conversation about it. And then I think that memory just completely escaped me for decades and I was asked to write a letter about why um, I wanted to join some sort of innovative initiative or community um, actually based in Bozeman, Montana, where my brother now lives. Mm, I was going to guess that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the question was, was something about like, wh why do you think that you're well suited for whatever role it was? 
I wrote a letter and I recounted this story as, you know, an illustration that innovation wasn't something that I just learned in school. Like this was really part of my DNA. And I sat down and I wrote this letter in like one sitting and I sent it to my brother and I just said, do you think this is appropriate? (laughs) And he called me immediately and he said, I totally remember dad doing stuff like this. Not only is it, you know, completely appropriate, he said, I think it's perfect. And you have a typo over here or something like that. But I had not remembered it, you know, for years until this, you know, something triggered me to write about why I was well suited for whatever role or position or whatever it was. And I sat down and I wrote it and and it just came flooding back. Like those, those types of memories came flooding back. Isn't that amazing? That stuff always fascinates me that the most random memories from childhood come back at random times, like, and all it takes is one little thing or one little prompt to trigger it. In terms of memories that you vividly remember, I mean, flash forward, and you have, even before starting your company, you've had a phenomenal career in design and art research throughout so many amazing companies like Pentagram, shout out Paula Cher, who was on episode 110, Nordstrom, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, like you've had such an interesting career. What is the most memorable project that you worked on from from that era of your career? Oh gosh, I feel like I've won the career jackpot. Like I've I've said this over and over again. My work to me isn't work per se. I mean, I do what I love and I love what I do and I explore and I create and I'm collaborative and I work with, you know, all sorts of beautiful minds from a variety of disciplines. I'd have to say that some projects that that really stand out to me, certainly working uh, for Nordstrom on their innovation team way back in the 90s and developing um, new products and services um, in the beauty area, fragrance, treatment, and color, the cosmetics um, realm. That was wildly eye-opening to me. After that, uh, working for Bank of America, uh, working on the Bank of the Future for years. I worked on that for about three and a half years. And I also worked on the Salt Lake City Olympics. Those were two career-defining projects I just loved. I mean, I just lost myself in them and, you know, kid in the candy store. Um, (laughs) Different types of projects, you know, at Wells Fargo and leading different types of teams. And, of course, going off on my own, you know, that has you know, spawned so many terrific new challenges and rewards and memories and and now teaching at a global scale, watching that light bulb go off in people and teaching, teaching people about something that I'm so passionate about and teaching people how to ask better questions so that they can make more informed decisions. That's pretty terrific. I go to, I go to sleep at night and I, I feel pretty good about that. And um, watching this community grow is really inspirational. So let's go off on your own. Why did you go off on your own and start your own company in the first place? You know, that's a good question. So I have been a practicing designer and design director uh, for 15, 18 years at that point. And I just, I wasn't as excited about my work any longer. Um, And I was looking for kind of something different to chew on. And I went back to school at the California College of the Arts in the uh, precursor to their DMBA program. It was a design and innovation fellowship, um, which was about 10 years ago. And at that point, innovation and design was very different than what it is now. It certainly wasn't, you know, the buzzwords. All of the students, there were, I think, 22 of us in this fellowship. We had to work on one uh, capstone project throughout the entire um, cohort. And when it came time for me to conduct my own uh, user research, I literally raised my hand and I was like, hey, who wants to trade? (laughs) And it wasn't because I didn't value research and it wasn't because I didn't understand research. I mean, at that point in my career, I had managed, you know, dozens of researchers and strategists and designers and, and writers and project managers. I just wasn't interested in doing the research myself. And I literally tried to barter this because I thought someone else might, you know, get more out of it. And I'll never forget my professor at the time said, Michelle, you are going to walk that plank yourself. 
And that weekend I wound up doing, um, conducting the first research I ever conducted myself. And I conducted five ethnographies, which are basically in field studies with activities associated with them. That's the long word that I always know what it is, but I always forget exactly. So thank you for that. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, um, stems from, uh, anthropology and literally I fell down the rabbit hole. I was like, Alice in Wonderland. It was you know, life changing for me. And Monday morning, I said, that's what I want to do next. I want to conduct design and user research. If had I known the power and the impact of hearing from the people I was designing for firsthand, I would be so much more successful. And and to me, it was so much more interesting to understand why people preferred this versus that or how people interpreted A versus B. And that was it. I mean, I left my big corporate job, my senior vice president job, design director job at Wells Fargo about six months later and I went off on my own. I was known for my design skills. So so clients originally came to me for design work and I only accepted clients and projects Um, when they would allow me to do research as part of the the contract or the arrangement. That turned out to be a very strategic approach. And within about 18 months or two years, I was able to pivot and hire designers and then continue to lead the research and then eventually phase out of more of the day-to-day design, work completely and focus on research um, design and user research exclusively, whether it was conducting or teaching. So the research is clearly something that's really important to you. You take it to heart. I mean, you describe yourself and your company as curious as hell and proud of it. Why do you think you are so curious and enjoy kind of that approach and challenge of unlocking insights? I think during that very first weekend, during that those very first ethnographies, I think I realized the power and the impact of understanding why and how. And I think there's a very big difference in a researcher's mindset or what we refer to often as mental model. Once you can break through the difference between understanding what is occurring or what did occur and why something occurred or how it occurred. It's like seeing the world in technicolor. It's like moving from black and white to technicolor. Being able to ask better questions and knowing how to ask questions in a structured manner and to gather evidence helps you in all forms of life, whether it's with, you know, meeting your new in-laws or talking with your seven-year-old or working with your colleagues and stakeholders to how you may interview with a potential new employer. But the art of asking questions and being conversational is really something I think that they should start teaching in elementary school. (laughs) (laughs) My girlfriend, Dana, teaches elementary school. So I think you have an inside source here for some recommendations on what they should teach. That asking questions piece is so big and it's, you know, a foundation of your business. It's amazing that you've been able to build and grow this business and take on more and more of, you know, just super impressive big name clients. When you look back to the early days of starting Curiosity Tank, what was super helpful as far as taking the next step of kind of just being like a a struggling new startup to, all right, this is a real business and, you know, we're consistently getting more clients because of X. With any engagement and with any sort of product or service development, we always want to start with a need. We always want to start with a pain point or an opportunity um, that we think that we are well suited to provide or to solve for. So the best businesses are trying to fill a gap in some space that they think they are positioned to fill. And in the case of Curiosity Tank, um, I didn't set out to build the business. My students and my corporate clients came to me over and over again and said, you know, you've got to offer us more. You've got to teach us more. There's no place to go 
as an unmatriculated student or as a practitioner aspiring to learn how to do what you do. And at that point, I had taught basic classes, foundational level classes um, all over town. I had taught at um, the Academy of Art. I had taught at the California College of the Arts, CCA, where I did that fellowship program. I taught at UC Berkeley. I taught at General Assembly. Teaching has always been a part of my DNA as well. Um, and, and my clients and my students would say like, please, you know, help us learn more about what you do, help us learn how to ask these questions and, and do what you do. And I went to General Assembly and I asked them if I could build out a user research certificate program for them. And they said, no, they said they um, were not interested in anything to compete with their UX design certificate program. But I have a terrific relationship with them. And they said, but, you know, launch as many classes as you'd like. And we are here to support you every step of the way. So that's what I did. I created two more classes for General Assembly. And all while I had been creating more corporate workshops for my clients to teach product teams how to ask better questions and make more informed decisions. And one of the classes I developed for General Assembly was a mixed methods class, put students through nine different methods in one day. And I needed an overarching problem for everyone to work towards and not knowing who was showing up to these classes. The only thing I knew about them was that they were looking to increase or improve their user research skills if they were voluntarily signing up to take my class. So the question that they worked towards was, um, or that I framed us for to all work towards was how might we help the next generation of aspiring user researchers, you know, become more proficient in the field. And I put 70 people through this class, 70 students. And then I went back to general assembly and I said, there's a, there's a, there, there, <laughs> here are the opportunities. This is what they're trying. This is what they're finding. Here are the gaps. Here are the opportunities. And they said the same thing. They said, no dice, can't do it. We love you. Offer as many classes as you want. We'll support you. Without thinking about this intentionally or not even unintentionally, I had created a class and I had basically conducted rounds and rounds of generative research or discovery research, which yielded a true pain point. And when General Assembly said no the second time, I really tossed and turned for about a couple of months. And I said, I'm sitting on a wealth of knowledge here. This is basically far more generative or discovery or foundational research, whatever you want to call it, than I would ever do for a client. I know the areas of opportunity. I know the pain points. And I'm particularly well suited with my background and my industry expertise in client list and history in education to fill a portion of this gap. And that's what I did. I use the same, you know, tools and tactics and approaches that I do for all of my clients. I um, developed a straw man outline um, of the first three workshops. I pre-sold them to make sure I had product market fit. And I iterated on those workshops over time and they increased in fidelity. They increased in engagement. They, you know, added more content, changed the delivery of the content and, and iterated, you know, over time, which is exactly how we develop products and services um, for my clients. I was going to say, you're, you are like one of the best examples of practicing what you preach, because literally these are the same things that you were doing as you started building this company in the first place. You're your own case study. You're also somebody who has a great relationship with an organization that you know, you've already shared has rejected you twice, basically. How were you able to deal with that rejection and create something positive out of it? I tried not to take it personally. They were, they were very direct by saying, this isn't you, this is a policy that the headquarters has, you know, in New York, that we cannot develop any series of classes around this topic. I, I continue to have a terrific relationship with General Assembly. I love working with them. Um, I continue to teach there. I teach uh, four classes a month there, uh, two to four classes a month there to this day. I've taught 
I've taught two, over 250 workshops for them now globally in the user research space. I teach 95% of the user research workshops that they offer outside of the bootcamp programs. And I'm very grateful. I'm, I'm very grateful um, and proud of my relationship and involvement with them and the impact that I've had um, on the students. So much of what you do goes back to asking questions, not just asking questions, but asking better questions. I have some questions about asking better questions. What opportunity is there when you are able to fine tune and crisp, crisp, crispin? Is that a word? Crisp, crisp, make your questions crisper. I'm just inventing words here. Crispalize. <laughs> Crispalize, crystallize. What opportunity is there when you are able to fine tune and strengthen your questions? Um, first of all, what we want to do is eliminate any sort of jargon or any sort of acronyms. Like CRISPR-Lite. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we want to um, eliminate any jargon and any acronyms, eliminate any frivolous words, craft our questions as simply and as concisely as possible, and only ask one question at a time. So for example, we want to avoid things like double-barreled questions. An example of a double-barreled question would be, um, how was your day? And what was the best part of it? Okay, so that's, we call that double-barreled. Another thing that we want to really be focused on, certainly in terms of product research, is what we're trying to learn about. Are we trying to learn about somebody's attitudes or are we trying to learn about somebody's behaviors? Understanding what we're trying to learn about will inform how we go about that exploration. What are we looking to learn about? Will it, is it primarily attitudinal or is it primarily behavioral? How do we ask the questions? In what ways are we asking the questions? Are we posing the questions to someone live, like you and I are having a live conversation? Or is this in a format that is going to be unmoderated, where I'm not going to have a chance to follow up or dig deeper? Right. So we want to think about the context of the question and where it's being asked as well. Why is it better to ask shorter questions? The shorter and the more concise questions we ask, the more likely we are to gather a response that speaks specifically to that topic. Now, another thing to be careful of is to be very conscious when we're asking open questions versus closed questions. Open questions tend to start with who, how, when, and where, or what even. Closed-ended questions tend to start with do, did, or does. Did you have a nice day today? will yield a binary answer. Probably yes, no, or kind of. But if I rephrase that question to, how was your day today? It's going to provoke a response that will yield a little bit more context and more color. And as a researcher, in most instances, I'm looking for the context and color first, and then I'm gonna come back and affirm or reaffirm what I think I heard you say or report back uh, with some closed-ended questions. So being conscious of open-ended versus closed-ended questions is super important. And you can practice these things like on the bus, you can practice them at dinner tonight. It's really about learning how to become um, a successful conversationalist. Um, however, in product and, and service design and research, you know, we're having a structured conversation in order to inform a decision that we need to make down the road. And I can use all the help I can get with that. So I appreciate your time. You mentioned that you can do this. You can think about these things. There's ways that you can practice it. And from your experience, what is the best way to practice and actually get better at asking questions? You know, first I would go through the process in terms of uh, what are we looking to learn? Like, is this a casual conversation or is this a, you know, conversation with a goal in mind? And if it's a casual conversation, say you're at a dinner party or you're at the dog park, I think the first thing that I would suggest is to practice asking open-ended questions, like become more cognizant of when you're asking 
open-ended versus closed-ended questions. So again, open-ended questions are going to start with where, when, who, why, and what, the Ws. And closed-ended questions will start primarily with do, does, or did. Does it yield a one or two word answer? Or does the question as it's posed encourage someone to respond with a little bit more story or context? I never realized till you just said that, how, I'm a huge sucker for alliteration, how all these key question words, whether it's good or bad, is like the, the jackpot of alliteration. They all are like the five W's or four, you know, things like that. A lot of repetition there. I have some tools actually um, that I'd be happy to share with with your listeners as well that um, will help understand and delineate attitudes versus behaviors and how to identify and mitigate bias as well. That might be Mm. interesting and helpful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, we can include in the show notes and everything. What's the application of this? If I'm a small business owner, what are the best opportunities for me to ask better questions and actually impact or tie back to the business? I mean, as business owners, we want to make informed decisions and we make informed decisions through a variety of different inputs and data. There are different types of data, right? There's different types of data that we collect. There's types of data that we don't collect. There's subjective data, there's objective data, there's qualitative data, there's quantitative data, But decision-making requires a lot of different inputs, including intuition and cultural events, you know, our own roadmap, our competition and things like that. But certainly user feedback, um, user research, you know, is a really important input in, you know, weighing sorts of decisions and making an informed decision. So, Once you know how to ask better questions, you know, most people feel much more confident in the decisions that they're making because they're they're able to make more informed decisions. And that's really the end goal. The end goal is to make more informed decisions, the right decisions. And the way we do that is, you know, through a combination of both scientific approaches and advising um, other people in how we go about applying, you know, the art and the science as well as the improv. I mean, there's a lot of improv that goes into learning how to ask great questions. What is your favorite question to ask? At the end of almost every live session I conduct, or even in an unmoderated session, I built in a question that um, says something along the lines of, is there anything else you think would be helpful for me to know about this topic? And I like to give space to anything that might be important that, or that the participants think is important for me to know that I, I may not have asked about. Now, I'm not my user. And when we conduct these types of sessions, it's really important to keep that in mind. So I might not have known to ask about how someone found this feature or how they used it because I was focused on their onboarding experience, or I was focused on how they're sharing, you know, this document with somebody else. Couple questions might be how, um, is there anything else that you think would be helpful for me to know? And then in a different way, I like to ask, is there anything else that you think I should have asked you about? It's basically the same question, but I'm asking it in two different ways. That's a great example because it totally puts it on the question to ask of what's most important to them that was untouched. There's such a wide range of responses you can get there. I see why you like that one so much. Is there anything else about your podcast idea that we have not discussed yet? If there is, you can email me at max at maxpodcasting.com. Let's save time with your high quality podcast and get that thing off the ground. Now, for the historic tradition of the switching of the gears. Let's switch gears a little bit, get to inspiration and creativity. Well, typically it's inspiration creativity. With you, I want to do inspiration and curiosity. People, hobbies, resources. To start off, how can you be and stay more curious? 
you know, I think it's a mindset. I think again, earlier uh, I mentioned something along the lines of moving from asking what happened or what is happening to why is something happening or how is it happening? And I think that shift in terms of, you know, gathering and asking sort of surface level questions to moving into a deeper level of curiosity is very helpful. Um, And when you think about it just in your day-to-day life or current events or decisioning that you're making about something simple, like what you're going to wear today or what you're going to eat for dinner tonight, it's a very different question to say, what are we having for dinner tonight versus why are we having that for dinner? And to explore that. You're going to totally change how I approach every dinner now. (laughs) (laughs) It can be torturous. My seven-year-old will say to me, mommy, it's not what, it's why. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that that's certainly one shift that is, you know, maybe easier said than done. But if you put a couple post-it notes around your house that says, why not what or how not what you know or when not do kind of simple shifts i think will deepen your understanding you know research is or user research and product research what i focus in more is used more than to just help increase your confidence and make better decisions It can also be super helpful in gaining empathy for the people that you're conversing with or the people that you're designing for. So let's take that same dinner conversation. You know, why are we having chicken parmesan for dinner again? Seeing how that person responds. Well, it's already made. Well, it's easy for me to do. Well, because we already have all of the ingredients in the house and or I know everybody eats it, right? So just even asking that why, you know, will help us understand that person a little bit better. Wouldn't the answer for the dinner question often be because it tastes good? I mean, I know in the chicken parm standpoint, like it definitely tastes good. Yeah. So I, I think that's great. Now let's let's find out like, why does it taste good? <laughs> does it taste good compared to what we had last night? Or does it taste good compared to... Um, Is it one of our favorite meals? Why is it one of our favorite meals? Do we have an association with that meal? I mean, in this specific case, I think it has to do with the chicken and the parm. I think when you, when you see how much Parmesan cheese (laughs) and mozzarella is involved in the recipe for chicken parm and how good it is. I mean, I happen to love cheese, but it's interesting to think about it that way, because obviously the taste is really good, but when you kind of consider other options, like you could be eating something for dinner because it's quick to make. You could be eating something for dinner because it's healthy. You could be eating because uh, you just saw like a movie about White Castle and you were craving White Castle. (laughs) There's all these different, different options there. Or out of habit, right? Or maybe there's some behavioral things there, or maybe it's already made and it's easier to just reheat. Right. Which is true. Which what activities or hobbies do you do outside of work that you feel help you stay more curious? I'm a creator. I'm a crafter. I'm constantly creating or crafting something. And I have a seven-year-old who is extremely curious and precocious and craftalicious too. So we're constantly doing science experiments or for the past month, we've been refurbishing the dollhouse that I had when I was a little girl. And This last weekend, she wanted to make pillows for some of the furniture to go into the dollhouse. That leads us into, you know, a whole different sort of exploration of crafting. And then you have the people that live in the dollhouse or uh, we cook a lot. And she's the first one, you know, to say like, mommy, can I make a concoction? You know, what happens if, and then she'll get out the ingredients and we'll see what happens when we mix together you know, flour and sugar and baking soda and liquid Hershey's chocolate or something and bake it. Let's just see what happens. So it's not something that I have to like put on my calendar to do per se. Um, It's more a matter of how I think and how I live my life and how I try to model that curiosity, you know, and and raise a curious human. Right. I was going to say your daughter and her 
dollhouse refurbishing business, which, you know, could become like a real revenue stream down the line is like a constant spark of curiosity and creativity for you. So it's like, you, you don't even have to try it's It's literally within your family and it's important for how you're raising your child. What do you think the impact of those things is on your business when it comes to working? Well, it certainly gives me a constant source of examples. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very true. But, you know, the other thing I like to model too is, you know, she'll ask me a great deal of questions that I don't know the answers to. And I like to, to model, you know, first of all, reinforce, hey, that's a really great question. I don't know the answer to that. Let's look it up together modeling that you're not expected to know all of the answers in life. And the thrill of the journey is often in that exploration. So we'll look up that answer together. Where is this country located? Or how far does it take to drive to our cousins in Montana? What about on the resources standpoint? So outside outside of things that you've created for Curiosity Tank, do you have any sites or publishers, or maybe it's just people that, you know, you follow in the online space that consistently are putting out stuff that you find really, really intriguing and, and make you think a bit? You know, my students, my students and my clients, I would say are my number one, my daughter are my number one inspirations. Um, so for example, my students would, you know, ask me constantly, like, how does this term compare to that term? Or how does this method, you know, differ from that method? Or my clients would say, like, what is, um, or I would see clients um, sometimes make the wrong hiring decisions, because they their interpretation of a specific type of role is different than what that role actually does, or what was needed for. And that inspired me to create the UX Lex, which is short for the UX lexicon. And you can find that um, on the Curiosity Tank website in the, the top tab, it's called uh, UXR Lexicon. And this is an interactive, you know, an evolving interactive glossary of UX and related terms for our industry. This also, the UX Lex, is a constant source of inspiration. And there's a whole beautiful story about how that came to be. And then there's an acronym decoder on there as well. There's about 80 acronyms. You know, it's it's just, it's interesting to me to, to work in user experience and what people that work in UX aspire to do is to create better experiences for other people, right? In the products and services that we design. But what we've done with our own terminology is create a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I witnessed this every day in my teaching and in my consulting practice, they are my explore, they are my inspiration. And the UX Lex was born out of a desire to help spur conversation and clarify what we mean by certain terms and acronyms and jargon, you know, that we use in the industry. And it's a, it's a free resource available to everyone. There's some beauty in the messes out there, because as you just exemplified, it provides so much opportunity for businesses and people out there to make things clear and to use analogy to make things easier to understand. Industries get that way, no matter what industry you're in, it just gets messy and there's so much, so much jargon and so many acronyms. There's always room to clear it up and, and make things more concise. Let's get to a fan favorite segment called the Wild Business Shoutout of the Week. The wild business shout-out of the week. Wild business shout-out of the week. This is where we talk about a creative marketing campaign that caught your attention, broke through the clutter. There is a pretty historic commercial or mascot series of commercials that just keeps on going and going and going and going. Do you mind sharing that? Yeah, I went earlier we were talking about the Energizer Bunny commercials from the 80s where it's a bunny toy. It's like a drummer bunny and um, the bunny doesn't stop drumming. <laughs> and I think in the original commercials, what you saw was like a 15 second segment of the bunny and something about um, the battery life of the Energizer battery. And then it cuts to a different commercial and then the bunny comes back and it was just brilliant in terms of its creativity and its execution. 
And here we are, we're talking about it 40 years later. It's so brilliant that it talks about keep going, 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 and it's had such lasting impact that obviously they keep reusing it. Kind of like what you're talking about with a mess of different things and just, oh, let's see what happens here. The combination of a bunny, a drum, and battery, like it's it's such a random combination, but it really works still to this day. And you have a, a personal tie back to the Energizer bunny or, or bunnies in general as well. You mind sharing that? Yeah. So um, earlier before we started recording, we were talking about um, my daughter and and one of her nicknames that I call her is Bunny. And she is a super high energy kid. And over the weekend, we, my um, parents and I were telling her about the Energizer Bunny commercials and she is like the Energizer Bunny. Um, so that's why it um, became top of mind. And now she'll come into a room and she'll start clapping like the bunny and then she'll go out and then come back five minutes later. It's very funny. Right. That's a perfect Halloween costume. I mean, you can do that every single year. That's so cool. I mean, it sounds like a great nickname and obviously she's full of curiosity, creativity. Why do you think this commercial and this mascot has been able to have such staying power? I think it was so unique. I think it was so well conceived and so well executed. And the message really resonates, right? I think everyone can identify with a toy. I think everyone can identify with ongoing energy and things that don't stop. And I think the surprise of the bunny coming back, you know, after that commercial break really told that story in such a brilliant and simple way, an impactful way. Pretty sure every American adult, at least, who was around, you know, in the 80s and saw that commercial would be able to recall it. That would be an interesting conversation to have maybe at your next dinner party or something (laughs) to practice your open-ended questions. Perfect. It all comes full circle here. Speaking of unusual combinations of things and unusual things in general, let's get to a segment called the unusual, da, 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 you know, drum roll, please. Pet peeves, quirks, weird talents. Let's start off with weird talents. What is something that maybe besides being an example, doesn't have an impact on your business, but is something that you're really, really good at? Multitasking. <laughs> oh, like you, do you mean like in your work day or just like in general? In general, um, so I constantly have projects going and I have post-it notes all over the place and uh, ideas to explore, destinations to travel to, um, new recipes um, to try or science experiments or people I want to reach out to to partner with. Keeping that sort of all organized in my head and moving it would cert- certainly be like the, the capacity to do that, um, I've been told, is pretty unique. <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's a it's a very valuable skill. How about quirks? Is there something a little quirky about your personality that maybe your family, friends, team members call you out for, but it's who you are? No reason to change it. Um, you know, th- that would be a quirk, like having all of these kind of balls in the air and all of these things that I'm interested in and involved in, I think that it certainly can be a benefit and it and and other people um, may find it overwhelming or intimidating. It can be hard to keep up with if you don't understand me or my DNA. Although everyone in my family kind of operates the same way. So it's not <laughs> a problem like within my family. And then how about pet peeves? Is there something that grinds your gears, just ticks you off a little bit? People with a fixed mindset. I don't understand that. No, I'm just um, Oh, <laughs> yeah. People, I can't do that. Uh, people that really cannot see above or beyond or just past the box. I, I'm always sort of dumbfounded by that because it's so foreign to me. Yet in in my research, in my work, I, I come across this frequently it, it continues to sort of dumbfound me. And I, and I think that comes from my background and the family that I grew up in and what I was surrounded by, which was educators and innovators. Um, so I would say a fixed mindset 
that continues to stump me. Now, intellectually, I know that probably the majority of the world has more of a fixed mindset than a growth mindset, but um, it's still, it still kind of stumps me. <laughs> so there we have it. The one thing that stumps you, you know, everybody talks about thinking outside the box. I think for you, you not only live outside one box, there's, there's multiple boxes in the picture and you have the ability to jump from box to box. It, it, and I think it's not just ju- jump from box to box. It's the ability to see the synergies between the boxes and draw from learnings in one box and apply it to another box, like the the recall and the application across seemingly disparate ideas. And that's what's so important for creativity. Like a, that's creativity in a nutshell, the whole diverge, converge. All right, let's wrap up with some rapid fire Q&A. You ready for it? Yep. All right. If there was a bot, no, I'm just kidding. What is a movie or show that you've watched that has done a pretty good job of satisfying your curiosity? Queen's Gambit. Mm. Yeah. Every time I talk to my parents over the phone, they will not stop talking about it. Same with a lot of friends as well. Taking everything by storm. There's so much to that whole show. I mean, from, from the historical context to the, I don't play chess either. So I was just really intrigued and I learned a lot and I have a tremendous amount of respect that in Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's a kind. Con- well, I mean, I guess anything with tank in the name, right? Oh, right. <laughs> what is your least favorite question to ask? How was your day? Or um, did, no, did you have a good day? That's my least favorite question. Because it often yields a response that says good or fine. <laughs> and I'm looking for more than that. All right. Next question. Did you have a good day? No. Okay. I couldn't resist there. You mentioned how much time you spent teaching in a number of different ways. And you've spent some time teaching college students actually at a couple of different colleges. What is the most challenging part of teaching at the collegiate level? Well, it really varies depending upon whether you're working in a matriculated organization or not. When I work in the art schools like the Academy of Art or the California College of the Arts, um, something as simple as whether or not they are Mac-based or PC-based can have an enormous impact on someone like me and my students and how I teach. The academic rigor that's associated with matriculated programs varies from school to school. But when you're teaching in something like general assembly or something that isn't as regulated, if you will, a lot there's a lot more creativity that can take place. And there's also a lot more support. And there's a lot more, frankly, a lot more money. Those entities can pay two or three times as much as the larger institutions. And they offer 10 times as much flexibility and support in terms of administration assistance, um, supplies, the ability to change directions. Um, so I could create a new class and offer it you know, within a month in a matriculated organization. Something like that could take two years. Wow, it's, it's crazy to hear about the differences there. Speaking of crazy, you mentioned way back at the start of this interview that you and your brother talk about your childhood being constantly being tortured by, you know, your parents throwing you these challenges and kind of encouraging you to think differently, to, to think creatively, to think cur- curiously, curiosity, that I think that's a word. What is the craziest kind of torture challenge you can remember that maybe somebody in a different family would be like, wow, they're making their kids do that it was never really like reckless. It was never really like putting us in harm's way. It was more, here's another example. When we were little, we didn't have coloring books. My parents felt very strongly that for the majority of our life, we will be expected to color within the lines. So this was our time to color however we wanted and to not have to be constrained. So we had tons of blank paper. Um, So I wouldn't say it was reckless in terms of like, go out and do this or try that. It was more about some sort of very strategic approaches to encourage us to, it was more about thinking and having that mindset. And I think they really modeled it too. I mean, my, my mother studied English 
um, and was a designer by trade and craft. And my father studied science and math and computers and was an entrepreneur and amateur architect. So, I mean, they, they really lived these models too. And when they didn't know something, I mean, I remember to this day, like the, the big brown set of Encyclopedia Britannica's, you know, and we were in the encyclopedias all the time. Well, I don't know, where does that come from? Let's go look it up. And like, as a family, we would like, go look it up. <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a different time and a different generation, I think you as kids would be constantly Googling or asking certain voice devices, everything. I think that's so cool. The way to ensure that your kids will color outside the lines is to remove the lines altogether. All right, last one. What is the most interesting cooking concoction that you and your daughter, your bunny, have come up with? Uh, there's too many to count. Okay, we saw this on a YouTube video. We bought Skittles and we put them in popcorn, like a uh, a pot where we popped popcorn in, you know, kernels in oil on the stove because we wanted to make colored popcorn. <laughs> and um, so like the dye from the Skittles would then spread to the popcorn. But what we learned was that um, the color stays for the first couple of pops. But then as you continue to pop the popcorn, all the Skittles colors meld together and turn into a brown. And then at the end of the day, our popcorn was all brown. <laughs> oh my God. Hey, brown popcorn. How did it taste though? It tasted like Skittles. <laughs> <laughs> Skittles popcorn. It's sweeping the nation. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. This has been amazing and fascinating and, and curious and love talking about this sort of thing and so cool that you do it for a living. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories, your insights. Where's the best place for people to connect with you and learn more about Curiosity Tank? Um, certainly LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn honored me with a top voice uh, award in the technology category. Yeah. Congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you. I, am super active on LinkedIn. It's Michelle with one L M I C H E L E Ronson R O N as in Nancy S E N. So definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, say hi, let me know you heard this episode. That'd be great. And if you're learning, looking to learn more about my workshops or any of my free resources or anything like that, um, please visit curiositytank.com. Um, and you can also find the UX Lex there as well as um, several different resources. And I'll put together a little bundle for your listeners as well as a discount code for anyone who may want to take a workshop. Perfect. Awesome. That's great. Well, we'll include all that in the show notes at maxpodcasting.com slash Michelle with one L dash Ronson. Perfect. Thank you so much, Michelle. Last thing, final thoughts. It could be a quote. It could be a, a verbal concoction, whatever you want. Send us off here. Curiosity did not kill the cat. I am a firm believer that the cat was framed. <laughs> Can't like speed and reflexes. Thank you so much, Michelle, for sharing your story, your tips, your insights. And thank you, wild listeners, for tuning in to another episode. If you want to hear more wild and curious, but especially wild, stories like this one, make sure to subscribe to the Wild Business Growth Podcast on your favorite app and tell a friend about the podcast. You can also find us on Good Pods and check out what podcasts I'm listening to. And if you need any help with podcast production or getting your podcast off the ground, you can learn more at maxpodcasting.com. Until next time, let your business run wild. Bring on the bongos! Bongos!